This is the Thrive Podcast with Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. And now, Pastor Fred Jeff Smith. Hello, and welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. Thrive is our acronym. It stands for Transformative Thinking, Helps Ministry, Renewed Relationships, Invitation to Evangelism, Visionary Worship, and Excellence in Administration. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you took the time to share with us, and I'm very delighted to have with us today Reverend Jennifer Jones. Reverend Jones is a member of the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church ministerial staff. Uh, She serves as our Minister of Social Justice Issues. She also serves as the Executive Director of Shiloh's Charitable Foundation, and she is a staple not just in Shiloh, but in the Baton Rouge community and around the nation. Jennifer, thank you for being a part of this podcast today. Thank you for the invitation, Pastor. Let's start with you just introducing yourself. I'm sure many people listening know your story, but tell us about your story, about your call to the ministry, how you got to be where you are. I've uh, been a part of Shiloh um, some 40-plus years. Um, I'm a native of Baton Rouge and have lived about maybe three miles from this church um, and did not join the church until a a college student being invited to this church by folk from campus and, you know, some of the crowd that we had the experience of sharing with. Um, And I was initially invited to a Bible study and uh, saw something and sent something here that uh, has kept me here low these many years. And I'm excited about the work in ministry and the impact that this church continues to have in this community. Um, my journey, um, as I started and began to study and learn and appreciate and knew who God was and uh, what God was allowing me to enjoy and be a part of, also came with a responsibility of giving back and, and sharing in ways that um, I just took for granted. Uh, It was back in 1990, I remember crossing over Park Boulevard on Terrace about 12 noon uh, and questioning God as we would have these candid, very candid conversation about the pain and ills of this community and uh, with the church on every block, almost every corner, Mm -hmm. uh, especially in the community in which I lived. Uh, yet there was so much pain and blight and uh, disappointment, and uh, I just asked God why. And uh, mm-hmm. I called some names of some people who I felt like should have had much more of an impact and concern about what was going on and able to turn around some things. And um, I heard or sensed the voice of Jesus saying to me, what about you? Hmm. And um, I struggled with that for a while, and... Uh, shortly um, told Pastor Smith we needed to have a meeting, and when I got there, he knew I was coming. (laughs) Um, And um, I guess it was because of a lot of the leadership roles he let me into that I was able to see and sense and understand what a call of God was and being compelled to go because Nobody wants to be a preacher. If they do, I sometimes <laughs> <laughs> struggle with them. And of True course, words. not only that, being being a, a a woman in ministry, 
uh, I knew the challenges, and I still know those challenges in mm -hmm. the South. So it was nothing I was excited about exploring. Sure. Uh, but one of the things I recognized very quickly was the need to uh, get some additional training, and uh, certainly Pastor Smith and, and others made it possible that I was able to go into seminary and still serve here in uh, a number of ways. And evangelism at the time, we were developing full uh, ministries and uh, the ministry of evangelism and social services and singles ministry, family ministry, prison ministry, all of those things were things that we sat around a table talking about the needs in the community and the kind of leadership that we as a church could could give. So that's been my journey. You know, it's kind of come full circle right? Uh, because of the mission work is probably where I started first. Mm -hmm. um, and evangelism has always been just a part of uh, who I am as a person. And as, as that's what ministry is about, sure. uh, reaching out to the lost and um, seeing the transformational work that collectively the church can provide that change lives in ways that we can't begin to imagine. So now I'm back. I, um, Pastor Smith led me to an organization that did faith-based community organizing. And I tell the story all over the country how uh, he told me, he said, there's this little Catholic nun that keeps coming by, just can't seem to shake her, can't get rid of her. I, I need you to go and do what it takes to get rid of her, either find out whether or not what she's offering uh, lines up with the philosophy of our ministry here at Shiloh, and you know what that is. Yes. And um, I said, I'll do that. He said, if not, do what you need to do. <laughs> so I understood that. It wasn't like he was putting a hit out on her, but sure. he wanted me to probably be the one to say this does not work. Absolutely. And he authorized me to be able to do that. But I did go, and I actually got captured by that. I remember the first meeting that I was able to go to was on Colorado Street down in Reverend Mary Moody's church. Okay. Uh, which was a church that she'd had, and, uh, you know, that's how things go. Uh, it was a church that needed a lot of work. It was in one of the poorest parts of the community there is, but in um, her uh, room, which she used for a number of things, around this table I saw folk that did not normally come into our community. And uh, we sat for about two years going back and forth. Sometimes I almost thought we'd have to call the police. Mm -hmm to quieten some folk down mm -hmm. because we began to deal with race and a number of issues in terms of inequity and other things that goes on in a community, you know, how resources weren't distributed well. And while the community that they saw looked the way that it did and the uh, blight and all of the other things that were going on, even the schools. So that kind of began the join journey for me in faith-based community organizing that helped us take a, a real look at... Uh, the scripture and, and what it meant. There was some, some things that we needed to do to, because it was a multi-faith group, mm -hmm. that we needed to do to uh, make sure that everybody understood uh, the institution as a church and then the call of God on the lives of men and women and those in which we empower and are entrusted in our congregation to be actively engaged, not as an institution, but as an organism, sure. being real, being felt coming alive in a community, yes, caring for that community, giving it life and breath and holding it together. So I was captured by that, and um, for about 25 years I did <clears throat> faith-based community organizing. We started the one of the first groups that was connected to a national organization uh, called PICO at that time, and uh, 
we started the organization here. That was WIN, Working in Faith Network. That lasted about 20 years. And, of course, some folk appreciated the value of the work that we did, and others were threatened by it. So when they get threatened by it, uh, there are ways that they uh, try and pull you apart, or if there's a weakness in any way or the perception of one, they take advantage of that. And, of course, they did... Out of that, though, I think had an appreciation for organizing, but one that they wanted to control. Sure. So uh, there was a lapse, and then there was a new build. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, that goes on in this community today. And I'm a fan of organizing, no matter who does it. I just like to make sure that the people that are part of that understand that they're not called in any organization to work an organization's agenda. Right. That they set the agenda and be prepared to do so. So that's, uh, that's kind of how I got to this place. And uh, Pastor Smith, as you saw that I might have some time and was retiring, the first thing you said was, you know, uh, this social justice work, you know, that needs to be done in this community. I, I, I would like to consider that you would think about. And, you know, uh, your daddy raised you well. I did think <laughs> about it. I, I knew the language. So I knew I had a responsibility there. And then really excited about being able to do it in a holistic way. Because one of the things I know uh, is that you understand. I didn't have to convince you about social justice ministry. I didn't have to uh, tie it up for you in terms of the theological perspective of it or the responsibility of it as a church and a community. So that part of it was easy. And then, of course, um, with the Charitable Foundation, I have been a part in many ways of a lot of the activities of it, but mm-hmm. I also saw some possible new opportunities that we could possibly, we both in some ways, they could support each other. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's kind of how I got here. You mentioned uh, the dialogue that took place uh, with Reverend Moody mm-hmm. at her church. Expand a little bit with me, if you would, about the place of, of dialogue. I was a part of a, of a dialogue group for about five years, an interracial dialogue group mm-hmm. that Reverend Jeff Day put together when he was over the Federation mm-hmm. of Churches and Synagogues. Uh, and, and the whole point of the dialogue was to bring people together uh, and develop relationships that would allow them to speak freely from their own perspectives on race and how these things affect our communities, affect our economies, things of that sort. I appreciated the the effort. Um, I, I think I grew from it. I think I've always taken things from it. But one of the things that I, I recognize, and, and, and you brought it back to my remembrance listening to you just now, is the the difficulties in in actually having constructive dialogue where mm-hmm. people are actually listening to one another? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that doesn't happen outside of the development of um, deep relationships. And uh, I, I remember the work as well. I believe, uh, to be honest with you, you and I and Reverend Moody were the only black folk there. Yeah. Um, and they brought in, they tried different. Uh, Folk from throughout the community, some stayed, some didn't, because sometimes it got pretty tense. But we took the time over donuts and coffee sometime to really just get to know each other and begin to care about each other as individuals. Then we began to care and appreciate the ministries that we all represented and what we brought to the table. Um, Matter of fact, it was around the same time that 
both the Federation and WIN was getting its win right. in terms of working. And one of the challenges we had, because folk wanted us always said, well, why, you all are doing the same thing. Well, we weren't. Our approach was totally different. Mm -hmm. So uh, Pastor Jeff Day and I, um, till this day, still have a tremendous amount of respect. But what we, because of the fact that we had set at that table, mm -hmm. we understood that we had the responsibility of helping the community see the difference. Yeah. You know, yeah. one dealt primarily with charity and the other dealt with justice. Right. You know, right. And uh, we would use that language. And sometimes we had to even get a little bit more simpler than that. Yeah. You know, one provides for the need and the other asks the question why you have the need. Yeah. And what can we do to make it equitable in terms of addressing it either with policy or with some actions yeah. that change those kind of things? But again, it was about the depth of the relationships mm -hmm. and the respect for each other. Mm -hmm. Now, some folk, as I remember, I didn't particularly care for right. in those meetings. Agreed. But I respected the difference, mm -hmm. and I learned from it, and mm -hmm. it has helped me to uh, become a much stronger person, um, both in ministry and even in my personal life, as I try to, you know, it's, a, it's really about perspective to that. Right. He was, well, let me say, he. they were entitled to uh, believe what they wanted to believe, and so was I. Sure. Okay. Sure. And it wasn't about him trying to co-op me, nor I co-op them. Mm -hmm. um, so it took, it took some time, and that was very, very important. Uh, the other piece is that, as African-American folk, I had to feel respected at that table mm -hmm. for what I brought, mm -hmm. you know. They weren't coming to give me anything. We were coming to share. The patronizing attitude that you have to overcome, uh, both as an African-American and as a woman, I would imagine, uh, can be uh, very frustrating at times. The thing that was most frustrating for me uh, in those discussions was the, f the fact that Quite often, the view that was put forth by the other group uh, was so diametrically opposed mm -hmm. to, to my view, and yet it was not spoken from a standpoint of hatred or anger, just a completely different understanding. And, and it amazed me at how we could look at the same situation mm -hmm. and have two completely different points of view. And it helped me to have a better understanding of why it is so difficult for us to to be able to have meaningful relationships that lead us toward some kind of wholeness mm -hmm. with one another. Because uh, we, we it's, it's not always just animus or, or, or resentment. It's just we come from completely different perspectives and yeah. we can look at the yeah. same set of facts uh, and come up with completely different conclusions. Yeah, I uh, when you said that something come to, comes to mind that uh, I uh, often think about till this day. Now, t uh, everybody at that table were they were either a pastor or served in some kind of ministerial role mm -hmm. in this community, and uh, there was a discussion, and I don't know what uh, the discussion was actually around, but uh, the conversation began to um, talk about God in such a way in terms of our need for. And I remember you saying that uh, black and white folk view God differently. Yes. And some folk got offended by that, and you had to elaborate on yeah. that. Yeah. 
Wow. And I, you know, I, I, I remember that. And uh, I've shared that story as, you know, across the country in uh, faith-based community organizing and even sometimes out the country, you have that conversation because everybody likes to talk about faith. Right. But right. that means something different for all of us. Absolutely. So that, that perspective that you provided for them in terms of how we look at God and how they look at God was one of those ways yeah. that um, speaks to you know what it is that you're describing there, that uh, it wasn't done with any animus and they weren't trying to be mean-spirited about it. And we weren't trying to hurt them. No. We were trying to create an understanding around that table that helped to support that we were going to look at life differently yeah. because our journeys were different. Yeah. There were different scars um, and different pain and different rules, right. you know, right. that uh, sometimes comes to this world. Our view of God is from the standpoint of the oppressed. Mm -hmm. And white folks' view of God is from the standpoint of the oppressor. Yeah. And yeah. it's hard for the oppressor mm -hmm. to have an appreciation of the view of the oppressed. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's hard for them to to understand the pain and the plight of the oppressed. And it's very easy for them to say, let's sing Kumbaya and Amazing Grace and hold hands yeah. And, yeah. And, and have a prayer and let's go out from here and everything is going to be all right. No, everything is not going to be all right because you're going home to one thing and we're going home yeah. to something else. Yeah. And, and, and it takes a different... Uh, appreciation of who God is from from the standpoint of your own personal experience that that allows you to to continue to even come to the table because at some point you're like what the devil am I doing yeah. still sitting here trying yeah. to convince yeah. uh, this person and, and, and at some point you stop trying to convince and you simply try to inform yeah and you hope that that by informing mm -hmm. uh, people will begin to awaken to the idea well maybe mm -hmm. I need to look at this thing from from a different point of view. Yeah. And and it took a minute for that to happen because initially, and even until now, when I use that analogy sometimes in teaching and training, um, uh, they were offended because it was they they wanted to defend that statement by saying that we were raised poor as well. Well, it's one thing to be raised poor black. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's another thing to be raised poor white. Yes. You know, there's this thing in uh, the language that we often use now trying to make it a little bit better is to help folk understand white privilege. Yes. Right? Yes. And even now as women now, we you know, as feminists and uh, women as theologians, right. uh, we're having to help even black brothers understand that there's a significant difference being a black man, the privilege that you have as a black man that I don't have as a black woman. Sure. You know? sure. So they kind of argued that point for a minute, but because of the depth of the relationship, they did not immediately walk away from it. They wanted to learn more about it. Yeah. And we learn from it, you yeah. know. We we learn uh, how limited in terms sometimes of their thinking, and it, it's hard sometimes for them to see. And when we talk about things being equitable and justice, uh, that's where we have to um, really invest a lot of time helping them see uh, how they come with privilege when they enter a room. And we sit around boardrooms. You know, there are opportunities that I've had in the future to sit. Uh, in New York around a funders table with about 15 funders. And even though the meeting was called by black folk and uh, 
present presentations that were made were being made about African-American communities, especially in the South and a right. lot of the work that we've been able to do. Two white men walked in the room and immediately it became about them. Right. And right. that was done by African-American folks sure. primarily. So sure. it's those kind of things that I think um, that kind of dialogue was necessarily and necessary rather. And until this day, it's dialogue that you hear it in different different uh, verbiage sometimes. Right. But it was that kind of thing that I think people understood the value in and saw the dynamic work that we were able to do together through the years that still goes on till this day oh. and are being done by other people. Yes. But it's something that we took the time and did the difficult work. Mm -hmm. And it did not happen overnight. No, it didn't. It you know, didn't. And, and not very long ago in um, eulogizing and sharing in the home going of Reverend Moody did I see some of these faces and was reminded of that time that you described. Yeah. Yeah. So in your role here at Shiloh, Shiloh is blessed uh, to have uh, something that I think is unique among African-American churches, certainly in this community in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And Shiloh has uh, a full staff of, of uh, ministers, paid staff mm -hmm. of ministers who, who have the opportunity to focus on different areas of need within our congregation and beyond the congregation into the community. We have uh, a minister of, of uh, Christian education. We have minister of youth. We have minister of comfort and care to the sick and shut-in. Uh, in your capacity as minister of social justice issues, uh, how do you see your role first in the micro with regard to the church congregation, mm -hmm. and then in the macro with regard to the larger community, because one of mm -hmm. the one of the great blessings of Shiloh is that Shiloh extends beyond itself and beyond mm -hmm. its walls out into the community. You know, when you asked about my coming on and, and creating uh, that in terms of ministry, there were so many things that we were already doing, and it was just a matter of connecting the dots. But one of the things that uh, I was excited about is one is that I didn't have to convince you or um, uh, or the church uh, in terms of social justice. They had to understand how it connected. They needed to be they needed the theological underpinnings of really understanding that it was a moral responsibility of the church as an institution, and then it was also a moral responsibility of every saved, every believed person to have care and concern mm -hmm. about the issues that were going on. So uh, to begin to approach that, um, it was an easy, easy job. I think we did um, Shiloh 2020, right. a visioning piece, and uh, we were able to, uh, you gave the vision for the church, uh, Pastor Demetri, uh, Reverend Demetri did the uh, the piece on education and holistic ministry, and then I was sharing the vision of what a social justice ministry could be. And what I wanted to make sure of is that the church understood that this was not about another auxiliary or committee, mm -hmm. but it was a philosophy of ministry right. that was guided by the liberation theology that... Um, some people are afraid to talk about it yes. in those terms. But when we talk about the Exodus, we're talking about liberation theology yes. and the Bible that supports it, both Old and New Testament. So uh, I presented something that captured every ministry in this church in some way. 
in kind of an organizational chart. And mm -hmm. um, I said that regardless of what ministry you have, um, success for this is that uh, there is some social justice component mm -hmm. or activity that supports that. And we will, um, through our work, continue to have activities that will embrace that and help develop and grow that. So I think the church uh, easily bought into that. And part of that is that we've kept uh, every week there's something in our bulletin around social justice ministry. There's a series of activities uh, that we did to demonstrate what was possible. So now I believe that we're at the place where we have, uh, in terms of understanding it theologically, um, the task, and this is something I've been very prayerful about, uh, rather than expecting a group, a special group of people to do mm -hmm. it, that we all do it together. Right. And they see opportunity of ministry mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what it needs to look like. So mm -hmm. we've been trying to model some of that. Um, the thing about social justice, and even in this church, um, there's not, I mean, when you talk about systems and social ills, our folk collectively outside of the church in many ways, depending on what they're part of, sororities and fraternities, school clubs, uh, social clubs, or even sports teams and all kinds of things, yes. they address some things and they, they take those gifts there. And what the difference is and what I think we're uh, being led to begin to look at is the collective work that a church does around this right. that's totally different from what any other outside institution or group of people will do. Right. There's something uh, that's much more powerful when it's done in a collective, just like a collective worship. Right. I can worship in my bathroom all by myself Absolutely. And, and get into the presence of the Lord and shout. But then on a Sunday morning or Wednesday when we're or in teachers meeting when the spirit of the Lord moves in a collective way. Yes. There's a power. Yes. That happens there that can only happen. So uh, as I look at the church and see and sense what's going on now, I think we're getting there. And I believe that's what the ministry of social justice should be. Mm -hmm. And it's not identified by one person. No. Um, it's a collective. However. Piece. It's not identified by one person, but the person who gives leadership to it has to be someone uh, who is deemed as credible and having integrity. And certainly you feel that, Bill. Uh, I don't know of anyone who, who thinks of you uh, in a way that is anything other than the highest of regard and respect. And you bring that gravitas with you into Shiloh and into the greater community. And uh, Shiloh is, is better because of that. And uh, we, we certainly appreciate what you contribute to the organizational piece and to the leadership that you bring to our church. What's the frustrating thing about this? Well, the frustrating uh, piece about it for me, especially inside of the church, is to watch the human resources in this church that God has called and placed in this body, uh, that they might be able to use those gifts here mm -hmm. uh, and not just see this as a trough where they come for a few hours to, to get fed or mm -hmm. to, uh, to get a drink, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and... 
to help folk understand and see and sense the collective power, what we could be doing together. Mm -hmm. You know, historically, and, um, you know, Shiloh has set the bar and has led this community in many ways. Uh, you ask about, you know, what does social justice and this work look like outside the church? One of the things in my involvement community-wise, um, it didn't matter where I was. If I was at the legislature, if I was at a zoning meeting or a city council meeting or, or at one of the hospitals or somewhere fighting on behalf of folk, that I did not see some of our members sure. in leadership roles who... If, in fact, even if they weren't even able to do it, an example of that is oftentimes when we were doing things that um, would affect the state. Uh, a lot of our leaders who work for the state would say uh, that they couldn't do this because they worked at the state. Right. Uh, I didn't expect them to be in a protest line or even to write an op-ed about it, but mm -hmm. I do expect the knowledge that they had that would be helpful that they could bring back to the church sure. just to inform us, educate us about what was going on to help folks see that. So this, what what's rubbing me wrong is that we have everything we need in the church. Mm -hmm. We have everything and we need in the church to make sure that we've got a school board mm -hmm. that's functioning and that's looking at equity and justice for our children, right. regardless of their background or where they live or the color of their skin. We have everything in this church to make sure that Everybody has access to health care, the best that they can have that anybody else has. Right. Because we have folk that's working from, um, and they don't do much bedpans anymore, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, working, you know, doing work in hospitals that does not require a degree right. to surgeons. Right. Yeah. That's true. Same thing in the criminal justice system. Yes. We have those who have been incarcerated, and we have those who have been over the incarcerated. That is correct. You know, when we look down at the courthouse and and we look at the number of judges, so you know, how do that? How do we bring them together? I yeah. struggle with that every day. Yeah. I have a sense of how it happens, mm -hmm. but you know, God has given all of us the ability of choice. They've got to make the decision. Right. They've got to see that as their stewardship. Right. You know, God bless them to get education, to have jobs that have trained them. Bring that those gifts and talents into the church. Yeah. Yeah. Because when the church speaks, that's when we're going to see things change. It's the greatest piece of leverage, in, to my way of thinking, that we have. I, I, I was with Pastor Earl Domain yesterday, and, and we got to talking about uh, community uh, events and social justice issues, things that are taking place with downtown and, mm -hmm. and uh, the school board uh, tax and things of that sort. And, and, and I think that one of the mistakes that we have made uh, is that we have tried to uh, debate with leverage that we don't possess. Mm -hmm. uh, we, 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 we've tried to, to play the game, uh, if, if you can call it a game, we, we, we've tried to enter into this dialogue uh, on somebody else's terms. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, we'll never have the dollars to leverage mm -hmm. against the dollars that will be on the other side. And in, in, in that respect, mm -hmm. we are David and they are 
Goliath. Now, mm-hmm. I know in the biblical story, David brought Goliath down, but but more often than not, it works out the other way. When you mm-hmm. got money, mm-hmm. money allows you to do a whole lot of mm-hmm. things that others that, that that you can't do. But we have a different kind of leverage that we need to learn better how to use. And and to me, that's the the tremendous gift of of community organizing when when we can come together and bring our righteousness and our intellect and mm. our experience together and learn how to utilize those things uh, it balances off the fact that we don't measure up in dollars if we mm-hmm. learn how to use it mm-hmm. correctly uh, and 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 for me that's the great frustration as far as the community is concerned yeah. great frustration and, and and here I am on my soapbox again it's great it's, it's the great frustration that I have uh, with uh, the larger Baptist denomination mm-hmm. uh, of which I'm a part and and to which I contribute so anybody who gets upset with what I'm saying I I'm a paying member mm-hmm. of, of of district association paying member mm-hmm. of the state convention mm-hmm. paying member of the National Baptist Convention. I think I have the the, the freedom to say what I'm saying. We spend too much time uh, doing uh, uh, worship things, uh, having church when we come together, rather than addressing uh, larger needs within mm-hmm. our communities. And and for me, that's the great frustration yeah. that that yeah. that uh, to, to use a term my father used to always use: we're sleeping giants. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's time for the for the giant to wake up yeah. and get yeah. back to work. That's a couple of uh, things. Um, that you brought to mind for me in organizing, oftentimes we talk about power. And um, one of the things that uh, in, in training uh, we used to often say is that there are two kinds of power, it's money and people. And one of the things that the church brings, and I want to say that folk on the outside of the church sees that collective power, mm-hmm. but they don't worry about it because it never comes together. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. But I added something uh, to that in, in my style of training. I would say that there's something even more so that we bring to that uh, in terms of power, and that's the power of faith. That's the power of the spirit. Right. And and that's the power. And, and I say faith because Faith has a different connotation depending on what people are, you know, what people are coming from right. in terms of how they choose to worship and what guides them in terms of their values and that kind of thing. So we may not ever have all of the money, but we won't even know how that happens if we don't get to the table. And that's one of the things I tell folk all the time. We can sit back as the church and complain about everything under the sun, mm-hmm. but if we never get to the table to be a part of that and to be able to influence that. What allows us to influence it is the number that we have in terms of people. Right. So people see us as powerful because we're one of the only institutions that still remains in a in communities where everything else is boarded up. That is correct. Or falling down. Yes. And that they haven't been able to get rid of in some way or the other. Yes. And then when it becomes an institution that has something that they can't grab a hole and divide because they don't own it, the spirit of the Lord that allows us to be the kind of folk who can bounce back, the spirit of the Lord that provides a transformed person because from the front door to the back door in the pulpit in the choir stand are folk whose lives have been transformed out of these same communities where that the schools weren't what we we didn't have the schools we needed to 
And of course, we are probably a generation maybe apart. Right. But I went to Baton Rouge High yes, way so before I. you did. Yes. Right. <clears throat> and you came maybe 10 years later, but it was because of my going to Baton Rouge High and others, even in this church, that is correct. who provided that kind of thinking. So um, the power that exists. And see, we can't always sit back and just continue to be victims. We've got to understand. Yeah, yeah. Totally but now we can't get to the table late. Yeah. We got to get to the table early. Yeah. And that's one of the teaching pieces that I think uh, when we talk about social justice ministry, we have to help our folks see and have an appreciation for. Why don't we vote? <laughs> as, as as a black community, one of the most powerful tools at our mm-hmm. disposal mm-hmm. is our right and our responsibility to vote. And yet uh, we don't take full advantage of that. What's your view as to why don't we vote? Oh, I've heard so many excuses. I've heard that it doesn't make it doesn't matter. They're gonna put in there who they want. It doesn't matter because they not all the politicians are crooked. They don't see it as a, a mandate. Um, you know, and historically you can't talk to folk uh, and especially our younger folk, you can tell them how many people died that they might have that right. You could tell them that this is something that God ordained. And even as you look at the, in the Bible, you know, Jesus was, I mean, for Jesus to be born, his folk had to go and do what? They were on their way to cast their vote. That is correct. And, and do the things that was necessary for things that he ushered in and provided for his people. Yes. Not just certain people, but all people. So I hear all kind of excuses about why you don't. I think people have become apathetic by it. Uh, And it's not supported by data. If you look at East Baton Rouge by itself, just East Baton Rouge Parish, um, we are now 55% African-American. Yes. You know? So anything that causes uh, us to be voted on we could control that. Absolutely. Could we not? Yes, we could. Okay. So uh, I get a little bit upset about some folk who want to uh, fuss at the end, and then you're responsible for the folk that you're fussing about. Right. Because you did not, and maybe you did independently, but you didn't see it necessary to encourage more folk. So that's another way that we have power. You know, I, I talk about here around this church, and of course, Every now and then, somebody gives me a little bit of pushback, but, you know, if we talk long enough, (laughs) we usually help them understand. But what would it look like to be a church that uh, 100% of the folk who can vote, votes? Yes. That's a powerful thing. It is a powerful thing. You know. And if African-American clergy thought that way, other than, you know, there's some who like, you know, they'll give anybody, well, let me be kind, they don't give anybody. They give some people a mic, uh, and they pick some folk uh, because of who they are. Right. Or well, who they represent, and it's not always the community. Right. Some of us can't understand when uh, God allows you to get in front of a mic representing God's people. You represent all of us and not yourself. Yes. Yes. So, uh, I think the myth of. Uh, Folk thinking that they can't vote, that it's not important. Some have been lied to and told all kinds of things, that this is the way they catch black folk when they have tickets. And, you know, if you go down and register to vote, they'll be able to, well, they can find you now uh, if they wanted to find you. Sure they can. So there are a lot of myths around that. But what's going to have to happen is 
like we do here. Um, there's not a sermon that's preached that folk are not called into action in some way. There's not, even when we do Bible study and, and any of the activities that we have around here, that there's not a group of people that's encouraging and helping to remind folk that it has to become a part of our language. And we do have a responsibility as men and women of God to incorporate that in a way that people can grab a hold to it. It becomes an expectation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's what I hope has to happen. And we can see uh, what God has already ordained to be and put into place. Government, God orchestrated that and yes. gave a design for it. It just got corrupted by evil men and women. And it's always Mostly been corrupt. evil white men, <laughs> let me just say that. But as soon as we gave some other people a little bit of power, sure. they became evil sure. or they abused it as well. And, and, and I can appreciate the fact that uh, some of those who have been placed in positions of authority have have been disappointing. I'll, yeah. I'll put it that way. But to to just throw up your hands and say, well, I'm not going to engage in this. It, it takes too mm -hmm. much of my time. Yeah. It, it doesn't take too much time to go vote. Most of the time when I go vote, uh, it, it takes two minutes uh, yeah. to walk in the yeah. door because there's no long line yeah. waiting yeah. to go vote. And I've, I've said, I don't care if it's for dog catcher. I don't care if That's it's for right. a tax. I don't care if it's for the president of the United States. Any opportunity that I have to vote, I'm going to take full advantage of it. I owe that uh, to myself, to my children, and I owe that to the people yeah. uh, who fought, bled, and died to give me that opportunity to vote. And I, I just believe that if more and more African Americans uh, took advantage of the right that mm -hmm. is theirs mm -hmm. to vote, uh, that we could start to see incremental change. And, and to me, the key in that is incremental. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's talk about that mm -hmm. for a second. Mm -hmm. One of the frustrations that I think I sense uh, with people, especially younger people within our community, I've, I've spent time in this podcast talking about Generation X and Generation Y and Generation mm -hmm. Z and the different ways that they think. Uh, one of the frustrations that I sense in, in, in younger generations is this idea that things don't change fast enough, mm -hmm. that, that it takes too mm -hmm. long to change. But the truth of life is, especially in, 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 in this country, change comes very, very slowly. It's, sure. it's very incremental. Sure. Uh, uh, so with that in mind, what, what counsel can you give mm -hmm. to help us to have an appreciation for incremental change? There's a saying that anything worth having is worth fighting for with worth working for um and and when you look at this society now everything is microwave it, it needs to happen quickly right and for the most part lots of things could happen quickly depending on all of the technology and all of the access that we now have that we did not have in the past so an example of that would be um because i've been counseling some folk around this this piece uh, with the school system about investment in uh, the different schools and that kind of thing. And, and part of uh, what I was saying to them is that, do you know, I mean, what you're doing has a tremendous amount of value, but did you know very quickly, and you wouldn't have to wait 20 years to flip the school board? Yes. 
Who's going to run for the school board that's going to be in control of the decision even before you got to the drawing board? Yeah. About how. So what I'm simply saying is what seemed to have been a long time before, a lot of these can, things can move much quickly, uh, much uh, faster if, in fact, we're able to make the commitment to be able to do that. Uh, if we go back to look at how long it was before we actually got the right to vote and right. the privileges that we have now. The other thing I, I need to say, and I don't want to forget this thought, as we talk about those that we might be disappointed in once we put them in office, because we have some brilliant minds that are in office, but what they don't have is the support of the people who did even go vote for them. Mm -hmm. But once they voted for them, they didn't support them. Right. And some of the things that they needed to do to be able to change the systems that are so designed, they can't do that by themselves. Yes. Because they're outnumbered down there, but they're really more of us yes. than it is of them, and they're going to need that kind of support. So, no, I, I'm not falling for the piece that it takes too long. You know, when you started or if, in fact, they did begin to go to a four-year college, many of them, uh, um, it didn't take just four years. It took six. Mm -hmm. You know, the average length of time kids go to college, now they're staying longer. Right. At the end of it is the investment, what pays off, now it doesn't help the parents any in terms of money. But that period of time moved because so much new is added and so much opportunity that once you leave, you're much more prepared to be able to do so. So you can't continue to talk about how long. You know, uh, I could still be saying to God how long right. about certain things. Right. But at the end of the day, I have this day. And the investment and the gifts that every day that God gives me, I have a responsibility I agree. I, I totally agree. Yeah. And and I, I, I just wish that more people would have an appreciation for uh, whatever progress we're able yeah. to make, yeah. e it w whether it be uh, immediate or incremental. We, we have mm -hmm. a president in office who's trying to make wholesale changes right now. How's that working out for the country? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so, sometimes... Uh, uh, well, I have a friend who says the wheels in a Baptist church move slow. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sometimes slow is not always mm -hmm. a bad thing. Yeah. Part of your responsibilities as uh, executive director of our charitable foundation is uh, the administration of benevolence dollars mm -hmm. uh, that flow to the church and through the church, uh, the administration of our summer youth enrichment mm -hmm. program, the administration of our scholarship uh, program. Talk a little bit about those things that we're doing here. One of the things that is, is exciting about, I'm excited about is that we have the opportunity to serve the broader community. And in all of those things that you mentioned, we do. Uh, in our missions uh, program where uh, every week we have a social worker here that uh, takes applications, and not only takes applications, but consoles and uh, when necessary, offer prayer or um, knows how to make a, re a referral that we might be able to meet whatever the need is of that person or that family. That's not just for Shiloh members. Um, we budget for the work that we do in terms of the broader community, but uh, when there are folk within our congregation, there are other assets to that. 
But what we began to find out is that not only does our congregation have an appreciation for it, but their their family members who are not a part, uh, people all across this community, and not just across East Baton Rouge Parish. People come um, from other parishes around just to get the resources that's available to us. Even in our um, summer youth enrichment program, we have people, uh, certainly our young people within our church, but we have people who are outside of our church. Now, part of the requirements for that is that they have to have, uh, in terms of Christian ed- Christian education, there's a certain percentage that helps them qualify for that program along with their grade point averages. But there are folk who are not a part of this congregation, so it reaches out, especially if they're churches who can't particularly afford it. Right. We are affording something to their young people as well. And certainly one of our scholarships, our Duma scholarships, we look at uh, something that's a little bit different for them because we're looking at African-American, uh, Caucasian, and then an other. You know, so we want to make sure that it's representative of the broader community. Right. Um, of, of course, grade point average and economic need, uh, that's a part of that piece as well. And, of course, part of what we look at for, for that particular uh um, scholarship has to do with how they interact with each other across races mm-hmm. and the impact as young folk in high school, which means that they're not going to leave high school and leave that behind. That's to make this community a better place for all of us. Right. And they would have had to express in many ways before they get uh, those scholarships of $5,000 each. Yes. Um, so there's quite a few things, and we get pretty excited about it, the challenge that we're having, and we're working on several things that we think um, that will be helpful for that. How, how do we make sure that there's an uh, economic stream uh, provided for our foundation? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I don't know of uh, very many African-American churches that have a charitable foundation. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, so we're trying to help our folk understand because we're the most philanthropic. And folk uh, from any foundation across this country will tell you that the most philanthropic folk are African-American folk. Yes, Okay, so and that's not just about them giving to the church. No, they give in so many different ways. So having to change the mindset and help some folks see it. Now, what's exciting to me is that we have had members and even folk outside of this church who see and have an appreciation for the scholarship program where Mm -hmm. some years we've given up to seventy thousand dollars in scholarships overall. But even in our mission work, some folk who've had an appreciation for that. And they make donations, you know. And uh, uh, that's the exciting piece that we have members and families who outside of the scholarships that we give, they set up scholarships in the name of their family members who've gone home to be with the Lord and others who have just decided that as a family, in addition to what they help us do through their giving in a congregation, they also set up scholarships that they and a collective group of their friends do through our foundation. Yeah. yeah. So that's something we hope to grow. It's a tremendous uh, blessing to be able uh, to uh, contribute to young people who may not have the opportunity mm-hmm. uh, to pursue their academic goals or their career goals. Uh, have the church not stepped in in the way yeah. in which we have. Um, in 2016, uh, there were historic floods here in the Baton Rouge yeah. community, and 
you stepped to the forefront and along with a few others, you organized this church to respond uh, to the needs of the 150 plus families within this church and uh, beyond this congregation into the larger community uh, to meet those needs. And then in 2017, as floods hit in Texas uh, and East and, and Western Louisiana, uh, you again stepped up and organized this church uh, to make donations and and contribute uh, to those who were suffering in other parts of of this state and into East Texas. Talk about that experience. Well, you know, as, as you say that, I, I, I can't uh, accept the responsibility of my doing that. I think one of the gifts God has given me is that I'm able to gather together a group of leaders and, and we think collectively about how to get something done. Um, and I, I think uh, the organizational skills, you know, I'm an organizer by nature, except if you went to my house, you wouldn't think that, right? <laughs> but being able to do that, uh, the human resources in this church and in this community, um, when we responded to the flood, um, people were coming in saying, what do you need me to do? And uh, it was just so heartwarming and the more we recognize that we had 150 families, uh, and most of them um, didn't have anywhere to stay mm -hmm. uh, and had lost a lifetime of, of what they had. And beyond the, the spiritual counseling that we uh, were providing, there were so many other things that were needed. We were able to set up an Internet cafe, which gave people access to being able to contact FEMA, even those who didn't know how to, how to use uh, the computer, we had folk who just volunteered would come, stay all day, um, and uh, help people get access and understand the system and provide them what they needed. Uh, we had folk that um, would come every day to provide hot meals, not only to our folk, but we were we put out every day 400 meals, and we, of course, you know, um, a number of those persons were people in our congregation. But mm -hmm. if we went on a street Absolutely. and they began to look for us on the street, they began to look for the van that would bring a hot lunch to them every day. And we right. did this for uh, almost two months uh, during a very difficult time uh, that people appreciated. But it took care of the community. And um, I just wish people could have uh, seen some of the notes and some of the testimonies of what it meant to see the church uh, respond in that way. And certainly we weren't the only church. Um, there began to be some partnerships where some folk fell short. We could step in and help them. Mm -hmm. uh, and some folks showed up at our church because they knew what we were doing uh, just to help with that. Clothing and cleaning supplies. Uh, I don't know how long we kept <laughs> You know, kept that, and it just kept coming. And every day we had teams of people who came in, and they went through uh, what they thought uh, people would not use to, you know, organizing and, and making available not just to this congregation but to this broader community. Right. And then, of course, when it happened to some of the many people who are uh, from all over the country and especially uh, in places that had, been uh, like from Mississippi and North Carolina and uh, different parts of um, 
um, the country, from Galveston, churches that been affected, they'd show up with trucks of uh, supplies and, and goods. Not only trucks, they'd show up with money. Yes, they did. <laughs> uh, that helped us to be able to feed people and to do the things that we were able to do. Uh, there were folk who uh, knew that because we had the structure in place, uh, they just they were looking for somewhere to send money to. Uh, that it would be, they trusted that it would right. be held in a way. Some of our uh, local foundations and uh, other folk decided to do the same because we had a system in place. So I just want to say that, you know, as much as you often like to say what I did, I could not do it, first of all, without you trusting the leadership and providing the opportunity. And for the both of us being tremendously blessed by people who trust us to do what we do, and they step up. It's just amazing how uh, they just kept walking in. What do you need me to do? And part of that is that because uh, there's a cadre of folk here that are willing to do and have so many gifts and talents, you have a sense where they can fit. Mm -hmm. And if you put them where they can fit... you know, you, you've got some designated leaders. They, they, they're called to lead. They know how to handle. They know how to treat. They know how to manage. You know, they, they're not condescending. They, ha- they know mm-hmm. how to appreciate yes. <laughs> volunteers, and, yes. and that's a key piece, yes. uh, that if you call them, you can know people are going to follow them. Yeah. Um, and it was just a joy to work with that and to be able to brag about it. I still brag about it wherever I go all over this country. Well, it's um, something to brag who about. We are it's something as to brag a church about and what and, God has blessed and, us uh, with. I'm, I tell people all the time, uh, it's a tremendous privilege to serve a church uh, that has a heart and a mind and a vision for holistic ministry. And uh, for that, uh, I have to give Reverend Charles Turnbull Smith a whole Mm -hmm. lot of credit for for laying a foundation and and to the members of this congregation for receiving the vision that that he laid out. I'm always uncomfortable with using the word vision. It sounds so super spiritual sometimes. Mm-hmm. He he had he had a mind of what of what a church ought to do. Yeah. And and what a church ought to look like. Yeah. And he was effective in communicating that to the congregation mm-hmm. and the congregation received uh and and responded to what he laid out and and I know that I'm a beneficiary of yeah. of, of that. Uh, in in my day today ministry, you mentioned childhood twenty twenty. It's the last thing I'm gonna bring up, and, and, and we're gonna wrap up. Uh, we, we we did try to lay out a vision mm-hmm. for where uh, we 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 wanted to see our church uh, be in in the year twenty twenty. We we first started talking about this not long after we got here in two thousand thirteen. Twenty twenty mm-hmm. is coming up mm-hmm. mighty fast. Uh, I think that we've made some progress. I think there's a whole lot left. Uh, that needs uh, to be done. Uh, uh, From the standpoint of our foundation work and from the standpoint of our social justice ministry, uh, what would you like to see happen over the next two years? Because there are so many uh, uh, issues that need to be dealt with in this community, it's just uh, trying to galvanize. Uh, I think we talked about this not very long ago as I've been pondering and trying to figure out how do we take the um, the folk that are operating in silos um, outside of the church with those gifts and talents and resources, 
how do we help them see that as ministry um, and the ministry of the church? An example of that is um, we could take domestic violence or mm-hmm. we could take health care. We could take um, criminal justice, uh, mass incarceration. We could talk about even as we're talking about uh, redoing government street and some other pieces uh, where we don't have, haven't taken uh, to have a collective voice in the design and the implementation. Now, we're trying to do some of that as the foundation to make that happen. But to expand that and, and let the church see that and we're able to coalesce all of those human resources and gifts and talents and do something and give guidance to not only us as a uh, church and as the broad community in which we reach, but I believe that we can model this in such a way that uh, that's not held under the guise of a particular organization. Now, over here, there's a whole bunch of organizations. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the collective works of the church. Sure. Maybe what you know, some of our larger um, church denominations or uh, groups should be doing, I think we can Absolutely. We can do that. Yes. And that's what I would think in the next couple of years. We're, we're primed to do that. We, we're, we're heading in that direction. We've laid the theological foundation for what it means to be a church that has a social justice uh, philosophy in terms of its ministry and what it means for its people. We have, um, in a number of ways, uh, in and outside of our church, in the broader community as well, begin to demonstrate uh, how effective that could actually be. And then now, how do we grow that? How does it become uh, the vision and um, that a congregation wants has, that it wants to grow and expand, mm-hmm. and not, not throw away what was, but build upon that yes. Yes. and be much more powerful in doing that. Yeah. You know, even as we think about the work that the foundation does, you know, we've always talked about our children, our elderly, you know, and uh, making sure that all of those in many ways uh, we had a responsibility for and we approached it in different ways through our scholarship, through our mission. So now we're also talking about what does it mean to help us understand from uh, the perspective of economic viability, what it means to do some economic development that supports all of that. Mm-hmm. So I think we're headed in that direction. We, we've got our hands on a few things mm-hmm. uh, that I believe uh we're able to help our folk understand that this is not just about them being consumers. Right. You know, right. That uh, they can uh, be entrepreneur, that entrepreneurial spirit can yes. wake up in our churches. Yes. And we can help train and develop and encourage folk to be there. So that's what, when we get to 2020, I, I hope to see more business owners, landowners. Um, you know, I hope to see our uh, scholarship uh, committee or even with our contributions that that has increased uh, manifold. Yeah, just manifold blessings, just yes. opening up our, you know, and, and the work that we do, even as a church, that our territory is continuing to expand. That's yes. what I'm looking for, and I think that we're there. Reverend Jennifer Jones, thank you so much for spending some time with us here uh, on the Thrive Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Terrence Turner, uh, for providing the technical support that makes this podcast possible. We'll be back again next week. We hope that you'll be tuning in then.